So, okay. Again, working our way through the Eightfold Path, one major division at a time. <clears throat> we did the Wisdom Division, which is um, right understanding and right uh, intention or motivation. And then we most recently have gone through the Virtue Division, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And now we're moving on to the meditation division, which is right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. And uh, the right right effort part uh, is that's a nice transition between uh, the practice of virtue and the sitting practices that you use to cultivate concentration and mindfulness. And of course, they all work together. <clears throat> so, all right. The practice of virtue. What is a virtuous act? Who would like to volunteer and answer? What is a virtuous act? Opening the door for someone. That's a good example of one. Virtuous act, like a definition, like an expression of compassion or kindness towards others. That's a very good way to put it. Yeah. What's an unvirtuous act? Kicking, spitting, screaming. <laughs> 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 an unvirtuous act would be causing harm to self or others. Yeah. That there you really an unvirtuous act is any act that unnecessarily increases the amount of pain and suffering in the world. That's an unvirtuous act. Any act that unnecessarily increases the amount of pain and suffering in the world. And so we could define a virtuous act in the same terms. Right? Any act that decreases suffering. Any act that decreases the amount of unnecessary pain and suffering in the world. Yeah. And where, what is the, where do unvirtuous acts originate and where do virtuous acts originate? They, they rise in the mind of the actor as a result of what? What are the causes? Why would anybody commit an unvirtuous act? Yes. They're suffering. Because they are suffering, yes. In which case, they are acting out of aversion to their suffering and aversion to what they perceive as being the cause of their suffering. Yeah. What is another cause? What, what's, what, what else would make a person commit an unvirtuous act? Craving, desire. Craving, desire, lust, greed. Envy. Yeah. And what? Oh, I was going to say envy, sloth. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Envy, envy is greed, and, and sloth is really a kind of aversion, at least laziness. Yeah. Sometimes I'm not totally clear, too. I, I just think back to like Anne Rand and the virtues of selfishness. You know? and, and your first thought would be, well, selfishness is not a good thing. But in the sense of watching out for yourself, it can be. Yeah. So well, sometimes they're, they're yeah. confused, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's what, when we were talking about virtue, we talked about the fact that, that uh, there are no simple rules. And to, any kind of, to make a statement that uh, looking out for yourself is a bad thing, is, yeah, that, that just doesn't hold. It's too easy to come up with examples. Yeah. But there is a, uh, there is a, there is another 
root cause of unvirtuous acts. I mean, aversion is one, and desire is another, and there's a third root cause. Delusion. Hmm? Delusion. Delusion, yes. Ignorant delusion is the other cause. And part of ignorant delusion is believing that you are a separate self in such a way that you commit the kind of selfish acts that are unvirtuous acts. So, whereas we could never say that uh, uh, looking out for yourself is necessarily unvirtuous activity, there is definitely, we can definitely trace a lot of unvirtuous acts to selfishness. But what are the roots of virtuous acts? Let's try going with the opposites of the opposites of desire, aversion, and ignorant delusion. Generosity, love, wisdom. <laughs> wisdom, that's one. Uh, loving kindness, which really includes generosity, yeah. and compassion. Loving kindness, compassion, and wisdom are the opposites of desire and aversion and deluded ignorance. Now, what is the practice of virtue? Mindfulness. Well, the practice of virtue is the practice of mindfulness. Yes, that's a, that's a, a good answer. Does the practice of virtue mean uh, that uh, you try to avoid committing unvirtuous acts? Yes, it does mean that. Does the practice of virtue mean that you succeed? <laughs> That's where the ignorant delusion comes in. Ignorance, there are unforeseen consequences. Uh, and you, there are also, very often, you don't even know why you're doing something. Big part of the ignorance is not knowing not, we're not even really knowing what you're doing. Not even really knowing that you are causing unnecessary harm. And not knowing why you're doing it. So ignorance is a big one. Or knowing why you're doing it, but simply being wrong about the way things are. That's right. So that, simply being wrong about the way things are. That, that's right. Yeah. So... Uh, Practicing, well, we look at the other side of this too. Virtue, the practice of virtue also means trying to do virtuous acts, right? And doesn't necessarily mean that you always succeed. They, uh, you try, you try your best, but you can't always know the consequences of, of your actions. But the practice of virtue is, is trying to commit virtuous acts, trying to avoid committing unvirtuous acts. But one of the things that we talked about a lot that you have to realize is that uh, you're not going to be perfectly successful. And as a matter of fact, it is practice. Is practicing golf going to the course and hitting 18 hole-in-ones in a row? It's not. And the practice of virtue is the same way. The more you do it, the better you get at it. But as long as there's the ignorance factor, uh, you're, you're going to keep on making mistakes. There's going to be unforeseen consequences. And, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you're, you're going to often not even realize what it is you're, you're doing much less the reasons for doing it. Really, the practice of virtue comes... You have to focus on your motivations and, and the ignorance factor. You have to focus on the source of those actions. You can't focus on the actions themselves. Because first of all, you're, you're, you're not knowledgeable enough, you're not wise enough to really know whether any particular act is going to increase or decrease unnecessary suffering in the world. All you can do is make your best guess and accept the fact that you're going to be wrong a lot of the time. But you're practicing virtue if 
more if, if over time more and more often you pick you pick right that's the practice of virtue you get better at it but the only way that you can practice virtue is you have to know what you're doing and you have to know why you're doing it and then you have to have some sort of knowledge some inner uh, inner understanding that allows you to make a determination about whether or not what you're doing is appropriate and whether whether it's what you should be doing whether what you want to be doing that's where the mindfulness part of it comes in the practice of virtue is as someone said the practice of mindfulness you cannot practice virtue without the practice of mindfulness and it really it comes down to uh, it's unlikely you're going to be perfectly virtuous so therefore the practice of virtue is the practice of mindfulness you use the you use the practice of virtue as a way of becoming more fully mindful, and a really important part of becoming more fully mindful is looking within and seeing what your motivations are, and seeing what actions come from desire and what come from aversion and what come from ignorance. And now this is what we're going to be getting into with the practice of right effort: is uh, uh, cultivating the compassion and the loving kindness and the wisdom that helped you to act out of a different set of motivations. But one of the things that we talked about and I hope everybody is clear on is that do, do all actions that are committed out of uh, loving kindness or compassion, uh, are they always virtuous acts in the sense of they always reduce the amount of unnecessary suffering in the world? No. No. Do all acts that are arise out of desire and aversion, uh, do those acts always increase the amount of unnecessary suffering in the world? No, they don't. But there is one sense in which they do. There, there is a consistency. But the big gray area that where the inconsistency is is in the external consequences of your actions. You do your best and you act out of the best intentions, but they don't always turn out that way. So that's the gray area. But in terms of the motivations behind the intentions, you can focus on that with a much, much higher degree of reliability. You have to get good at it, but if you focus, if you examine whether your motivation for doing something, if it comes out of desire or aversion uh, or ignorance, such as attachment and selfishness and things like that, even if the act itself doesn't contribute in any way that you can see to the amount of suffering in the world outside of you, it's going to increase your suffering. It's going to increase your suffering because, number one, as we did mentioned a little bit earlier this evening, suffering is your dissatisfaction. It is your wanting things to be different than they are. It is your desire and aversion. Or as uh, as usually stated by by the Buddha, that the cause of suffering is craving, desire, and aversion. So, when you act out of desire and aversion, you're already suffering because you're already dissatisfied with something. But even worse than that, every time you act out of desire and aversion, you make yourself more likely to act out of desire and aversion in the future, and even more specifically, more likely to commit the same kinds of acts that you're committing now out of desire and aversion. So you increase the power of the hold that desire and aversion have on you. And the same thing with the ignorant, delusion part of it. Whenever you act, and the action is, is being driven by a deluded belief about the way things are, it makes that belief stronger. 
and it ensures that the person that you become in the future is going to be more trapped by that delusion and more likely to think and act and react out of that delusion in the future. And the converse is true too. No matter what the ultimate consequences of the action you perform, if it arises out of loving kindness or compassion or wisdom, it's going to have a beneficial effect on you. When you act out of loving kindness and compassion, you weaken the hold of desire and aversion on you. When you are generous, you weaken the hold of greed. So there is going to be a positive outcome for you, even if you, even if there are unforeseen consequences of your supposedly good act, or even if your knowledge and judgment and skill were inadequate to the task, and, uh, and the consequences were different than you intended them to be, it still is going to have a very positive effect on you if the act is motivated by these positive factors. And that does include the wisdom. Even, even if you haven't had insight into no self and emptiness, if you have enough acquired intellectual wisdom to recognize that, that if you had a deeper understanding of no self and emptiness, that this would be a more appropriate way for you to, to act, to behave, or to speak. That's going to weaken the delusion that you're, that you're trapped in. That, that very motivation for that action is actually going to make you more, make it easier for you to achieve those kinds of insights that are going to bring uh, the deeper and truer wisdom. That's what the practice of virtue is about. When we cover the right speech, right action, and right livelihood, would anybody disagree? Between those three, they cover absolutely everything you could possibly say or do. I would welcome any any rejoinder, any argument that somebody could come up with. But so what about is thought part of right speech? Um, thought is not part of right speech. No. It's not okay. it's right action. Yeah. But this is this is really what we're talking about next. The right effort, that gets into into your thoughts. It's really an extension of the same thing. The right effort is a continuation, it's an extension. Sort of started out with uh, understanding uh, uh, understanding and uh, knowing the kinds of the appropriate intentions that come out of understanding. And then we moved into virtue, and now we're moving from virtue into uh, right effort. And, and there is a flow, there is a continuity in there. They're not disjunct from each other. Right effort really is about everything that you say and do. It is also about the decisions you make. When we talk about right livelihood, Life is full of decisions, full of choices. And you can make those decisions that lead to your actions uh, based on, on your desires and your aversions and your ignorance. And so we're already starting to delve into the, the mental realm with the decision aspect of right livelihood. But with right effort, we, we get into it seriously. The way that right effort is usually defined, it's defined in a few several places in the sutras, and the way it's usually defined in, in the tradition is it, it has to do with your mind. There are wholesome things that come up in your mind, wholesome thoughts, wholesome motivations, and then there are unwholesome thoughts and motivations that come up in your mind. And the way that right effort is defined is as when something wholesome arises in your mind to sustain that, to maintain that, to continue it. 
when something unwholesome arises, to let go of that, to release that, to dispel that. When there are unwholesome things that have not yet arisen in your mind, it is to cause them to arise. Did I say the wrong? Wholesome. Okay. When there are wholesome <laughs> things that have not arisen, then, yeah, sorry. When there are wholesome things that have not arisen, you want them to arise. You want to cultivate them, to encourage them, to bring them up. And the unwholesome things that have not arisen, you want to keep them down. You don't want them to come up. So it's this four-part definition of right effort. is You keep the wholesome, you get rid of the unwholesome. The unwholesome that you don't have, you keep it at bay, and the wholesome that you don't have, you try to bring that up. Um, one question. In the practice of meditation, is it a thought, just treat it as a thought, no matter whether it's wholesome or not wholesome, and you let it go, no matter what thought it is? That's right. Or am I getting that? No, far? no, absolutely. Um, in meditation, and meditation is a practice, and meditation is a practice that helps you do these other things. So, if, you, if your intention is to cultivate concentration and mindfulness so that when you get up from the meditation that you can uh, continue to be mindful and change the way you think and behave in the future, then even an unwholesome thought, or no, sorry, even a wholesome thought, a thought that would otherwise be wholesome, you know, oh, how nice so-and-so is, in that particular time, it's, it's not appropriate, it's not wholesome. It's not wholesome in, in the sense of what your goal is. Because, now, there are kinds of meditations where you do that, though. There are kinds of meditation where you're deliberately cultivating loving kindness and compassion. And so what you do then is, is you do, you deliberately think about how nice somebody is and send them loving kindness. Or think about the suffering of somebody else and, and, uh, and generate the wish that you could take that suffering from them Take it for yourself. So there are practices where it is appropriate, where exactly those thoughts are appropriate. But if you're doing a practice that is specifically intended to allow you to have greater concentration and greater mindfulness afterwards, then it's not appropriate in that situation. And as a matter of fact, if you look, and remember it's the root of the thought too. It's just like, it's just like with the speech and the action. It's the root that is important. And what you should notice in your meditation, you should ask yourself, why am I having these wholesome thoughts at this time? <laughs> and what is the answer you're likely to find? Some part of me is willing to do anything not to keep up the practice? Something like that? <laughs> yes, there's somebody else. Yeah. I haven't... On the question of cultivating that which is wholesome and suppressing that which is not, I feel like I've stepped in the cow pie of self. There isn't anybody driving here, and and Dr. Freud would be talking to you about, oh, there's all kinds of things going on underneath our awareness. Mm -hmm. that are maybe perhaps not entirely wholesome and, and we'd just be repressing those. So I, oh, I, I didn't say repressing. Out. I was careful not to. I know you were, and, I thought, and I'm bringing yeah. out the cow pie now. Um, it looks like that's just, oh, I'm not going to think about it. No, no, we, we won't think about the naughty bits. Mm -hmm. and it's like everything else that I'm teaching you. There's a lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. It's not like right speech is just not telling lies anymore. Right. Okay, so if nobody's driving, who's doing the uh, picking of what shall be appropriate to the moment? Mm -hmm. Good question. Who do you think? <laughs> if, if, if nobody's driving, does that mean there's no driver? <laughs> oh. oh, okay. Yeah. See, that's the thing. There's no self here, you know, like in the middle of your head about halfway between your ears and yeah. sitting in there operating the controls. Yeah. That's, that's but not that happening. that doesn't mean no driver. No. No. Yeah. There, there is a driver. Have you ever watched one of those 
fabulous movies of starlings, flocks of starlings yeah. flying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who's the driver? That's very good. Yeah. That's 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 what we're talking about here. <laughs> but we have no other way to talk about ourselves other than using these pronouns, I and you, you know. And um, part of the trick is just learning to be able to use those pronouns while always keeping in mind that, you know, there isn't any driver. It's just convenience. <laughs> it's just a convenient designation, right? Just as like saying, uh, the flock of starlings decided to go this way. And so we're talking about this particular flock of starlings uh, coming to behave in a particular way, which means the unwholesome uh, thoughts and feelings and emotions and everything become fewer and the wholesome ones become more frequent. Yeah. So there's no driver like in our brain necessarily, but there's a driver that's sort of bigger, bigger than us and does things like with the starlings that's Peaceful or um, but you, you, you're, you're thinking there's still there's no no driver in here, but there's still a driver somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's what I thought. You said. No, I didn't say that. I said this is like those starlings. There, there's there's nobody in charge, but it behaves. It behaves effectively. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was yeah, just uh, a week and a day ago, on PBS they have <laughs> one of these bird things. And they had all these starlings and they showed what happened. It was this, this hawk that was, he was out to get himself a starling. And the flock through its movements totally foiled him. He ended up giving up in despair, going looking for something easier. <laughs> I don't know if it, but they said that's such a beautiful show, but that they each starling has its attention on seven others. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Equate that to all of us in our minds. <laughs> <laughs> Is there some sense that the danger is the driver? I mean, they're, they're responding to yeah. that, that danger. Yeah, well, and, and certainly in that case, yeah, they're responding in, in, uh, to the danger presented by the hawk. But, and responding as though there was a, no one starling would have the brains to figure out how to evade a hawk. Yet there's something much larger than any individual starling that not only knows how to do that, can execute it as well. And that's really, that's really what's happening inside of us. We are made up of components that are less than what constitutes our, our, that collective of behavior and responses and thoughts and everything else. But that's really what we're working with. In the Starling story, did they by any chance use the term superorganism? They never used that word. Okay, because I was, they do use that word in describing the behavior of bees, beehives. Yes, they do. And I was trying to line up our behaviors, uh, our collective and maybe the idea of a superorganism and, and, and the starling... Starlings, human beings, and hives of bees all are based on the same principles. And they're different than corporations and nations in that everything happens bottom-up. There is no one in charge. And if to the degree that we have any sense in the long term, if we last long enough, we'll learn to function that way as well. And but and, and until we do, we'll keep messing up pretty seriously. It is it is nature's way though. Yeah. So in that sense, are you are you and your teachings just one more Hawk or one more stimulus in the environment. It's just like one more piece to the whole. The influences the whole arc. Yes, it, yes, exactly. I am, 
I am simultaneously just one more starling in the flock, but at the same time, I'm trying to be, hopefully not the hawk, maybe more, what, I don't know what starlings eat, but a, a patch of those things. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what, what I'm getting at is, is, it's not exactly, there's no, there's nothing under my control of that. There's no my to be in control. That's a, it is a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to understand, but your individuality is real. Your personhood is real. But its reality is based on an internal interconnectedness. It's not based on a boundary and separation. All notions of boundary and separation are false and inappropriate. They're misinterpretations, they're misunderstanding. Because that's the way our minds do things, is they chop everything up and create imaginary boundary. So, you, you exist, you are a real, unique, individual person, but there is no boundary to your personhood. So what says, yes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do right effort, or no, I'm not, I'm going to say, screw it. I mean, what's that? Well, it's a con. You think about it, it was just a conversation we had. It's all these different parts of yourself have somehow enough of them formed enough of a consensus that you're moving in that direction. But you're not moving in that direction as rapidly as you could because there's a lot of other parts of yourself that are still trying to go different directions. At the same time, this didn't all come from within you. It is in response to all kinds of things around you, of which this Sangha and myself and books and other people you've met and other Sanghas that you belong to, they're all part of it. And so this phenomenon of you moving in this wholesome direction, it's not a product of you alone, it's not a product of the world alone, but it is a synergetic interaction of all of this. And the fact that there is a separate person uh, that seems to be doing this, that's just a construct of our mind. It's a, it's, a, it's a convenience, and it's a necessary convenience. But it's one that we also need to, to transcend. It's necessary, and this perception of separateness has gotten us a very long way. We've made huge progress on the basis of it. But we've reached the limit of where it can take us. It, it, it cannot take us any further. We either transcend it, or we, you know how Thomas Edison invented the light bulb? Any, anybody know that story? Feeling like 9,000 times. No, that's right. <laughs> try it. Boop, doesn't work. All right, try it again. You know, we're either going to be the success or we're going to just be another one of the, for, uh, one of the failures. So we're going to have to transcend the separateness. And in a sense, you have to look at you have to look at things like flocks of starlings and, and hives of bees to help you understand what the true nature of uh, this universe that we are part of is. It's it's pointing us in the direction to go. But we can come back down to much simpler, familiar ideas like stop acting out of self-interest and uh, stop being driven, and I mean driven, compelled. You know, it's a compulsion by desire and aversion. And rise to the higher level of your nature. Lizards probably don't have much com compassion. You know, grasshoppers probably just, you know, I, it's hard to imagine a grasshopper experiencing much love and kindness, loving kindness. But here as human beings, we can, and this is the side of ourselves. I mean, grasshoppers and lizards both have desire and aversion. There's no question about that. But we have something else, and that's that's where our future lies: is in, is in transcending our past and growing in, into this future. Yes. Well, I guess you know there is like a disconnect, and you know, it is like you're talking about. It's all. Um, you know, there are all these different causes that come to play, mm -hmm. and 
but at the same time, the teachings say that you are responsible for your habits. And there's yeah. a lot of personal responsibility and effort. Totally, and that's really what we're talking about. It, and the right effort is is making the effort to to take responsibility. You know, that, that's the problem. We become who we are through haphazard chance. You know, and you've all become somebody who's willing to be in a place like this on, on Thursday night. You know, and that's... The time has come, though, to take responsibility for who you're going to be tomorrow and next week and next month. And these are the tools. The practice of virtue is one of the most incredibly powerful tools. Virtue is the vehicle for liberation. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't correctly, but sometimes you could say I'm virtuous accident, I'm ignorance. And ignorance is sometimes not intending to be unvirtuous, it's just you don't know where the people don't know, right? I mean, it's not necessarily yeah. driven out of, of reason that we need. But that's the problem. You're you're ignorant of what you're ignorant of, right? And that's that's where things like you know. Um, but the intent's not. Sometimes it's just because lack of information. Right? The the in, intention is arising out of the ignorance, and we're not suggesting that you go and try to to identify. Categorize all your intentions, and and well, well, in a, in a sense we are, but not in that direct kind of way. Much more indirect way. It's first come to understand and recognize your intentions, on the basis of something that doesn't, that you haven't realized the truth of. Yeah, I mean, you partially realize the truth. There's probably the majority of human beings, not everybody. After all, there was Anne Rand and a few people like that who took another point of view. But the majority of people can really see that there is something wrong or, or there's something less wholesome about intentions that are rooted in desire and aversion, greed, lust, anger, hatred, and so forth. And likewise, the vast majority of people can see that there's something rather different and special about Intentions that are rooted in loving kindness and compassion. So we can already see that, and it's pointing us to an even deeper truth. It's through the practice of mindfulness that we attain to this deeper truth. And the magic of mindfulness is that once once we focus the conscious power of our mind on seeing these things, it is the mere act of seeing and understanding these things that changes us. There is a place for restraining yourself from certain kinds of actions. There is a place for trying to replace unwholesome intentions with wholesome intentions. It's a, and it's a very important place, and it's a very necessary place. But ultimately, what's going to happen? You don't succeed through you don't succeed through this manipulation of thoughts and intentions and actions. You succeed through the mindfulness that, at the very deepest level of your being, brings you to understand this the deeper truth that you have a glimmer of intellectually. And once you understand that at your deepest level you no longer experience intentions driven by desire and aversion. That's the change. Once you attain to a higher wisdom, a higher understanding of the way things really are, and that's, that's what we really want. We want to know how things really are. That's real wisdom. Once you have that wisdom, that the logical result of that wisdom is loving kindness and compassion. So once... Once, once the individual starlings in the flock that is you have reprogrammed themselves on the basis of this wisdom, then the behavior of the whole flock reflects that. And that's, that's, that's what you're after. You want to come to a place where these unwholesome things don't arise in you anymore. 
that you don't act. And it doesn't even occur to you to act out of these things. That doesn't mean you won't still make mistakes. It doesn't mean the things that are beyond your ability to uh, predict and forecast are going to happen. But you're, you're not in a position of having to constantly battle these bad, these uh, unwholesome tendencies that you have. You've changed it at the root. They're gone. You know what they say about uh, the Buddha as the Buddha never had to make any decisions. Right? He had purified his mind stream. There, there was no, there, there was no, there were no unwholesome motivations. Everything he did and said was an act of, uh, of loving kindness and compassion. And he didn't have to think about it. This, this is one of the attributes of a Buddha. There's a field called Buddhology, you know, it's kind of like theology. Theology is the study and the description of the nature of God, ultimately. I mean, theology expands beyond that. Buddhology expands beyond that, too. But at its heart, Buddhology is guys with big intellects and lots of logic sitting around figuring about figuring out exactly what Buddhas must be like. A Buddha has it. Buddha is a perfect example of this and that, and therefore must have this, these characteristics and so on and so forth. And what the Buddhologists have concluded is that once, once the Buddha has uh, gone beyond karma, that's another thing we could talk about. Once the Buddha has gone beyond karma, though, he never, he, he, he never has decisions to make anymore. He never has any choices. He just acts out of these pure, wholesome motivations. That's the direction you're moving. Not, and you, along the way, you're going to do a lot of work on yourself. But never make the mistake that you're going to get there by fighting with yourself. Because the more you fight with yourself, the more that other part of yourself fights back. And so it's mindfulness and the magic of mindfulness that ultimately makes the difference. Yeah. How do we know we're starlings and not turkey vultures? How do you know what? How do we know we're starlings and not turkey vultures or something? Starlings and not? Not turkey vultures. Or... She's picking an unsavory bird. <laughs> well, actually, turkey vultures are a good example. I spent a lot of time watching turkey vultures. You know, and they are a flocking bird, and they they do incredible aerial acrobatics. And what we see is we'll see one flock that lives on one side of the mountains, they'll come over to the other flock that lives on the other side, and they'll circle around each other in, in a dance as flocks, not as individual birds. And the flocks will pass through each other, and they'll do all these things. like And, and it's it's like the starlings. It's there There is there is a... There is a consciousness at a level that transcends any one of those individual turkey vultures. Um, the, our, our name for turkey vultures is Buddha birds. Yeah, Buddha birds. After all, they don't ever kill anything. They just clean up after everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now I'm going to unpack something kind of carefully because I'm worried about it sounding too mystical and too superstitious, but I really want, I really want a response. We, when we have this awareness that the boundaries we create the, are, are, are not quite true, it, if you step aside from that, what seems to step into its place pretty readily is a lot of synchronicity. Oh, what a great coincidence this was. You know, I, this couldn't have happened better if I'd planned it, that sort of thing. You get a lot of synchronicity when you start looking for it. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this movie about um, a character who is very Buddha-like, and he's a, he's a, a, a warrior. And he's, he's always going around doing things. Like at one point, um, he, he looks like he's being a bad guy because he comes up to this uh, uh, boatman's 
only source of livelihood. And first thing he does is stave in the hull with his foot. Can you and, speed and, it up a little bit? We're running out of time. Sorry. <laughs> and um, and you think, oh, he's evil. And then you see the evil, the even worse Chinese troops come along, and they they can't cross the river. They can't kill people. It turns out to be a good act. Well, mm -hmm. what I'm going for is Buddha never had to make a decision. He did things. They just turned out to be the right things. Did, is there a kind of a mystical thing where when you're Buddha, even if you put a hole in a boat, the synchronicity of the universe is going to be such that that's a good deal? No. <laughs> no. Okay. One of the things I like about the sutras is Buddhologists notwithstanding, the Buddha made mistakes, and they're recorded for us. He screwed up, seriously sometimes. Of course, the commentaries, centuries later, made excuses. Oh, in his omniscient wisdom, he knew blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, it's the staving in the boat because he knew this thing was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a commentary from a Buddhologist, not because he was always, oops. That's just right. Exactly. Sometimes oops happens. Yeah, sometimes oops happens. But there's another way of looking at this whole thing, synchronicities. It's like, you are this fabulous, incredible thing that is so much beyond what uh, the individual parts of your mind are that make you up. And those individual parts of your mind are so much more amazing and incredible by comparison to the parts that make them up. And so on down, right, to atoms and, and subatomic particles and, and the stuff that makes up the fabric of the material universe. It also goes above that, because collections of human beings are a kind of consciousness with a kind of purpose that goes beyond individuals. Um, we're not terribly good at it yet, but you can certainly see it. And you can look at the rest of the world, though, and you can see that individual organisms, uh, when you view them as a species, you can talk about how this species behaves, and it reflects an intelligence beyond any of the individual members of the species. Uh, not only that, they're part of an ecosystem, and you look at how the whole community in that ecosystem works, and it displays an intelligence that goes far beyond any of the individual species that make it up. And likewise, biomes and the whole biosphere, and I just suggest to you why couldn't this extend all the way up to the entire universe, the universe in its entirety? I mean, we don't get bogged down in what's a universe and what's not. My definition of a universe is, is everything that is and everything that isn't. Okay. It's, it's all inclusive. And of course, now what anybody who gives it a thought, I say, wait a minute. If I think about the character, characteristics that that kind of universe has, and it's responsible for all of this, and, and it sounds a lot like God. Well, yeah. <laughs> we don't use that word in some circles, but... <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So, I can go with synchronicity as, a, as, as transcending the creation of our boundaries, but I don't necessarily get mystical correctness at all points because of it. Well, if you want them, I'll give them to you. But... Oh, oh, okay. That's slow of you. <laughs> as long as they serve a good purpose. Good, uh, you know, there is, there is this mystery. There is a mystery. There is, there will always be a mystery. But back to the synchronicity thing, you know, uh, and even to what we were talking about earlier this evening, you're actually far better off assuming that everything that happens, happens for a purpose, and that there is some intelligence far beyond yours that knows what that purpose is. That allows you to surrender and accept the present, freeing yourself from suffering. And in freeing yourself from suffering, 
and accepting the present, it makes you into a powerful being who can step forward and be a part of the larger plan that you can't see. In spite of your own incredible fallibility. In spite of your own incredible fallibility. Because after all, if the if the larger plan is a perfect plan, then your fallibility your fallibility is part of the plan. Oh goody. I all that all that you're asked to do, all that you're responsible for is to do your best. You're not responsible for being able to do what you're not able to do. You're not responsible for being more than you are. But you are responsible for doing your best. And these are what we're all talking about here, is the tools, how, okay, I'd like to do my best. How can I do my best? These are the tools. So, (laughs) anyway, I guess we we will continue on with the topic of uh, right effort. But what I'd like to do is I'd like when you come back, when we talk again, when you come back next week and talking with Shelley, starting then and continuing the week after when I'm back, is thinking about this, this being mindful in your life, the practice of virtue. The practice of virtue covers absolutely everything Everything you say or do is covered by the practice of virtue. And the practice of virtue, in its essence, is the practice of mindfulness. And so this next tool that we're talking about, let's to, to get there in a meaningful way, we've got to talk about how you are doing in your real-life situation, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, hour-by-hour, in the practice of virtue in the practice of you see virtue gives you a framework in or in which to practice mindfulness and everybody complains I do all this meditating but in my daily life I'm not mindful and so virtue gives you the framework to be mindful and so I want to know how that's doing how that's going for you so that I can show you how the right right effort comes becomes uh, an ex- expression of that right effort becomes an expression of the practice of virtue and the practice of mindfulness. So, until then, thank you.